coming up on Philosophy Talk. The mind and the world. Human beings collectively have experienced only a small, idiosyncratic sample of all that ever has been or will be in the universe. But on the basis of that experience, we have built great storehouses of knowledge about the world. How is that possible? Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Was Shakespeare right? Do we overestimate what we really know about the world? Can the mind make contact with a world that lies outside of the mind? Is there really a world out there? Where is my mind? Where is my mind? Can the mind make contact with the world as it really is? Our guest is Howard Robinson from the Central European University. The Mind and the World, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, the mind and the world. The Mind and the World, or Mind and Matter, those are titles for a cluster of traditional philosophical problems that have to do with conscious minds and their relation to the physical world. The physical world, including the very brains that seem to, in some way, be the basis of the minds. But I suspect many of our listeners can, and indeed many philosophers, may think that modern science and common sense pretty much give us the answer to these questions. So, yeah, I think you're right, John. For, I mean, common sense things and science thinks too. Well, look, there are two things. There's the mind, that's our ideas and sensations, and there's the world, that's all this physical stuff. But the mind is really just part of the world. It's just part of the physical universe, one complex physical system among many, many others. Yes, so the idea is the mind is, is just the brain. Or, or maybe the whole central nervous system. But anyway, it's something physical. And this physical thing that is the mind is affected by the external world through the sense organs and other parts of the body. And then the mind, in turn, affects other systems by sending out signals that move arms and legs and start digestive processes and keep the lips moving when we're on the radio and the like. Yeah, right. That's common sense. And it's also science. Is uh, the picture that's inside uh, that's in embodied by contemporary neuroscience and psychology. So, yeah, that's right. So, if we solve the problem, Ken? If so, instead of the mind and the world, we could just think about the pressing problem of why the Giants have so much trouble winning away games. Well, John, you know. You know we haven't solved the problem. From the birth of philosophy and even before, deep thinkers have found the picture we just sketched very, very problematic. Well, you're certainly right about that. The picture is problematic from the point of view of religion and from religiously minded philosophers. For one thing, where does it leave the soul? Where does God fit in? If God has a mind, it doesn't seem like it will be a physical system. How about the afterlife? And even if you're not religious, you might think the picture really doesn't allow for free will or consciousness. One picture that does seem to take care of the problems you just mentioned is Descartes, Descartes' dualism, where the mind is the soul, and the soul's not part of the physical world at all. It's, it's an immaterial thing that exists not by taking up space like physical objects do, but by, just by thinking and being conscious. Descartes' most famous line is, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum in Latin. The idea that just because we think, because we are conscious, we exist and know that we exist, 
and that this could be the case even if the physical world weren't there, if it were just an illusion. Minds are one thing. We know they exist. Physical objects are another. They're dubious. Right, right. In this world, in this view, the mind could exist without the physical world at all. I mean, there could be there could be experience and consciousness without a physical world even existing. So if you think like that, then life after death is in a non-physical heaven or hell is, is not a problem. And God's mind, like ours, isn't a physical uh, thing. So that makes sense, too. So we've solved all those worries you had earlier. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, Ken, now we have two theories. The one we started with we can call somewhat pompously monistic materialism. Monistic because there's just one kind of stuff materialism because that one kind of stuff there is is matter. Minds are matter. Minds are part of the physical world. Then there's dualism, which is there's two kinds of stuff in the world, mind and matter. Well, so we got you said we've got a view in which there's only matter, and then there's a view in which there's mind and matter, so we need a view in which there's only mind, and that's that's Dar- that's Barclay's view. It's often called uh, idealism. I mean, he agrees with Descartes that minds are not matter, but he goes even further. He doesn't believe in matter at all. He thinks that the world consists entirely of minds and, the, and their experiences. What, what we call physical things, things we call physical, just are just recurring patterns of experience. On Berkeley's view, to be is to perceive or to be perceived. It's to be a mind or, or the experience of a mind. And that's his mo- most famous line. So you, you can think of idealism, going back to your pretentious categorization there, monistic immaterialism. There's only one kind of stuff, minds. And the physical world is part of or an aspect of mind. You know, Ken, I, I think Descartes' picture and Barclay's picture are, are quite beautiful. It's fun to think about them, uh, to see the arguments they give for them. I enjoy teaching them. I love them. But I must admit, I'm pretty stuck with the sort of common sense materialism we started with, even though I don't love it and it's not very pretty. Yeah, John, you know what? I, I share I share your taste there. But you know what? Perhaps you and I are just creatures of fashion. But luckily, we have a less fashion-bound philosopher with a view closer to Barclays to help us see the problems with our view and the plausibility of the alternatives we just rejected. That's Howard Robinson, who will join us all the way from Budapest, where he teaches at the Central European University. And I have no doubt that at least some members of our audience have grappled with these questions, too. I hope they will join us at 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, talks to someone working on the intersection of the mind, the brain, and other parts of the body. She files this report. If you want to talk to the brain, you have to go through the body. At least that's how it used to be. So if you were injured or paralyzed, communication with the brain could be cut off. That's changing as a result of new technologies. The goal, simply put, is to help people uh, that may be suffering from a paralysis or some other injury move again. Krishna Shinoy is an associate professor at Stanford University who works on neural prosthetics. That means reading the electrical signals your brain sends out and translating them into the movements of a robotic arm even if you're paralyzed, like Christopher Reeve, the actor who played Superman. When Christopher Reeve was no longer able to move his arms, he was still able to think about moving his arms. And why not eavesdrop in on the electrical activity associated with individual cells in the brain called neurons? Shinoy uses electrodes to pick up those brain signals and interpret what they mean. When you think about moving your arm to the right, for example, a certain neuron will pipe up. By listening to 100 neurons at a time, you can get a pretty clear picture of where someone wants their arm to go. 
Right now, you're listening to neural activity from a monkey in Shinoi's lab. It's being fed snacks. Each time the monkey reaches out its arm to grab a snack, the movement is preceded by a burst of clicks. If you filter the sound, it's even clearer. And in that way, we're able to listen in on the electrical chatter of the brain, this and predict very fast, within only a few tenths of a second, exactly how your arm should be moving through the world. Shinoi says that data can be used to control prosthetic limbs. Of course, your brain doesn't just send signals out. It also takes in all kinds of information about the world. Other researchers are working on replicating that kind of sensory input so that sight could be restored to blind people, for example. Shinoi says ultimately prosthetic devices will be a two-way street, reading information out of the brain and feeding it back in through sensors. If I reach out and pick up that cup of water, I need to know how hard to grip. And for that, I really rely on pressure sensors. I'd also like to know how hot or cold that glass of water is. Maybe this becomes very important if that glass of water is a cup of coffee. The result could restore an incredible amount of function to people who've experienced debilitating injuries or disease. And robotic arms are not the only thing you could control. So, for example, if you're able to move a cursor around a computer screen, then really anything you can imagine, which is you know, quite large these days, controlling from your computer screen you could control. So someone who's completely paralyzed could call for help, change the TV channel, or even control a wheelchair, not to mention checking email and browsing the internet, all just by thinking about it. The multitude of things that we're all very comfortable and, 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 and increasingly experienced with dealing with our computer would be returned to the patient that previously was not able to move a limb. But all this makes me wonder, if all you really need is a central nervous system to control prosthetic body parts and receive information about the world, and that central nervous system is really just a collection of cells receiving and putting out electrical impulses, what are we? I mean, what does it mean to be a person? What is myself? <laughs> That's a great question. I think, I think the deepest thinking on this issue is probably one of the original 1960s Star Trek episodes, right? That's the one where an alien steals Spock's brain and uses it to control an entire planet. Space, the final frontier. If a, you know, sort of our brain and spinal cord sitting in a jar is really who we are, then it does really push this question of what is mind, what is brain, what is body, who are we, and the greater questions of consciousness and self-identity. Perhaps those questions are the real final frontier. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Cornelius. I'm John Perry. I I'm a big collection of neurons sitting in a jar at KALW, and with me is my friend Ken Taylor. An even bigger collection of neurons <laughs> sitting in a jar. And our guest is Howard Robinson. He's professor of philosophy at the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary, from which he joins us, and he's author of the book Perception. Howard, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you very much. Howard, among the views Ken and I discussed, your view, uh, from what I've read, is closest to Barclays. Now, I hope you don't mind that we call this view unfashionable. You know, in philosophy, being unfashionable, that's high praise, not criticism. I've the, always been unfashionable in my view, so I'm quite happy with that. Okay, yeah, cutting-edge unfashionability. But tell me, before we plunge into the argument, just from a personal point of view, briefly, when in your life were you first drawn to idealism and why? 
Well, I was a dualist when I was a graduate student and in my first year or two of teaching in Oxford. Then about 1972, I began to think about the nature of matter. And it became clear to me there was no very clear conception of matter. Um, when you, our ordinary conception of a physical object is that it possesses colour, shape, hardness, and all these uh, qualities, what Locke called the primary and secondary qualities. But then, of course, on most views, the secondary qualities, like the colour, are only in our minds, the way the thing affects us. So the thing out there is just space with its with the dispositional property of impenetrability. And it was thinking about the whether you could have a conception of the material world deprived of its secondary qualities, when it was just the ability of one thing to influence another that made me come to the conclusion that the notion of the mind independent matter was somewhat incoherent. Uh, okay, so let, let's short, short way of putting it. Uh, let, let's unpack that a little now. Now you, you you say a dispositional property, so that that that's a distinction philosophers make between right. two kinds of properties things have. A disposition is what effects it has on other things under right. certain circumstances. So if glass is brittle, that's a dispositional property. It means it will break if it if it falls. If it, right. if it, it, as opposed to that, there's categorical properties, I guess. You didn't mention that. Is that the idea that, we, that all we really know about objects is their effects on us, which is their dispositions to cause things in us? We don't really know what they're like in themselves? Is that the well, picture? The scientific conception of, of matter is just of, a, of matters being a set of dispositional properties. Energies, fields, forces, they're all terms which describe what objects do to one another. Nothing about the intrinsic nature of the thing doing the doing. And uh, an argument, not a very original argument that I came up with, was that this is a kind of vacuous conception. If an object is just the ability to affect another ability to affect another ability to affect okay. another thing, now, got a Howard, my, my head is spinning out there. No, I'm so I'm, I'm going to go back to common sense. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I have all these sensations. I understand the idea that when we perceive color, it might not really be in the object, like at least, at least as we perceive it, right? Because it does something to my sensory apparatus, you know, and shakes my nerves, and I have these perceptions. But there's something out there doing something to me. Otherwise, why would this stuff happen in me? I mean, I don't just will myself to see... Uh, 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 a blue thing when I look over there, you know, it, something's happening. Me, so there's. I'm, I'm going to key this question up. You can think about an answer. Something's out there causing these sensations in me, and that's the real world, and it's independent of my mind. But I'm going to let you think about that and then answer after a break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk today. We're discussing the mind and the world with Howard Robinson from the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary, from which he joins us. What about it, folks? Are you a mere brain in a wholly physical world? Or is the physical world just an aspect of your mind and of other minds? Or does it matter to you? Is one conception more appealing than the other? Join us by calling 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Next, we're going to plunge further into this question about whether our sensations give us information about the world, what the world is really like, or do they just form a veil that makes it impossible to ever know what the world is really like? Or is there a world out there at all? The Veil of Perception, plus your calls and emails, when Philosophy Talk continues. We're 
We're playing mind games on Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about the relationship between our minds and the physical world. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. What about you? What are you? Are you an idealist who believes there's only minds and the contents of mind? Are you a monistic materialist who believes there's only matter and that somehow mind is constituted out of matter? Or are you so confused that you're a skeptic? You don't know what to think. You're moved by arguments on this side, arguments on that side. Whatever you are, join the conversation. The toll-free number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or you can email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. Our guest is Howard Robinson from the Central European University in Hungary. So, Howard, I want to go back to what we were talking about before. Look, you seem to have a view. You seem Okay, so look, here's a view. There's stuff out there. It affects us, causes sensations in us, and then we mistakenly attribute our, the sensory properties r- r- that are caused in us to the objects out there, right? And, but there's no reason to believe that the objects are really like what we perceive them as. You say, that's deeply problematic, and then you go all the way to a view that says, <clears throat> uh, well, I think you go all the way to a view that says, there aren't any objects out there. There's no out there out there. Is that right? And why do you go so far? It's, it's kind of right. Um, I think there's no way of giving any categorical or specific properties to what's out there. And the very, uh, as it were, category of categorical properties is modeled on what sensations are like. Tell, say, say for our listeners just what you mean, and John, you use this phrase too, by a categorical property again. <clears throat> a categorical property is one that's characterizes an object in its own right, not in terms of what it can do to something else. It's, a, it's just a, an intrinsic property, a property of the thing itself that's independent of, as it were, its causal powers, uh, how it affects other objects, right. uh, that, that kind of thing. It's and what characterizes the object taken neat, taken right. on its and own. And people who believe in objects that exist independently of our mind might believe they've got a bunch of properties in their own right, a bunch of categorical properties. I think in so. I mean, some people would deny that. Okay. Some people think that the physical world could be just uh, a web of interconnected influences, rather like a set of magnetic fields with no, no magnet in the middle. <laughs> right. And it's the incoherence of that view that some of the things I've written about is directed at. You, you can't have this picture of uh, a world which is just mutual interacting influences. And yet we don't know, we, well, first, it's an epistemological point, a point about knowledge, we don't know what's in there in the position of the magnet, but I think there's no reason to think there is anything uh, there at all. But that doesn't mean that I don't think uh, there's anything causing our experiences. There's a difference between Berkeley and Hume. Hume thought there was no need for an account of what makes our experiences fit a pattern. Berkeley thought there was, and he gives that role to the intelligence out there, namely God. So there has to be an explanation of our experience, on my view, but the, the materialist explanation isn't a good one. So, so let me review the bidding here. So, so we, 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 we have Descartes, and Descartes' picture of the world is, well, he, do, he believes in God, so if I was at a blackboard, I'd put a big circle and put God in it. Uh, he believes in the physical world, which is a world of objects with their properties, so we would draw some, uh, lots of little circles with little dashes around them for their properties. And then he believes in minds, and right. minds are objects of a different sort, and they have properties which are their ideas, their thoughts. Now, Barclay and you cross out that second thing, right? And, right. And, and, and then somebody says to Barclay, but Barclay, 
does that mean you don't believe in chairs and tables? And he says, no, you've just located them in the wrong place. Chairs and tables are just patterns in our minds. But, but that still leaves a problem. What's exactly the relation between the patterns in my mind and the patterns in your mind, and what does God exactly have to do with it? Well, on Barclay's view, uh, God causes these patterns because um, he, as it were, he gives us a world to live in, and the world we live in is not some mysterious object hidden behind our experiences. It's the world of ordinary experience. And the world of ordinary experience is a kind of intersubjective world full of colors, shapes, feels, of the sort that we normally know, not some highly abstract mathematical peculiar thing out there. But, 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 but let me challenge this for a second. I mean, so, right. so you and I, uh, or Ken and I, since we're here together, we both see my cup of water here. So we have, we have ideas of a cup of water. We have sensations of a cup of water. Right. Now, it sounds to me like the cup isn't just my sensations, and it's not just Ken's sensations, right. but it's not just both of our sensations either. Really, those sensations are telling us about God and what he intends to do, but, but aren't, aren't we just bringing categorical properties of God that are as mysterious as the categorical properties of matter? Well, it does, it does depend on thinking of objects as, as it were, um, elements are nodes in a divine policy. <laughs> so elements are nodes yeah. in a divine yeah. policy. Yeah. Wow. Now, um, you're saying that's just as mysterious as matter is. More. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say that. More mysterious. The, the, Barclay believes the following, and I think he's right on this. Um, as far as the nature of mind is concerned, we're aware of what it is to be a will and to be an intelligence. So we're aware of the, uh, as it were, the, the guiding nature of, um, uh, of mind and intelligence. There's nothing we could attribute to matter to play that role. So the interaction um, with a, 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 a purpose and an intellect uh, out there makes more sense than the interaction of something where it's wholly incoherent to attribute anything particularly to right. all. Right, that dumb matter should shape our minds, the contents of our mind is like a mysterious thought in the Barclay eyes, Barclay and eyes. But mm. you're listening to Philosophy Doc. We're talking about the mind and the world with our guest Howard Robinson from the Central Euro European University in Hungary. He joins us all the way from Hungary. And we'd love to have you join this conversation too. That's 1-800-525-9917. 1-800-525-9917. We've got a caller in the line now that's Gage in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Gage. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question for Dr. Robinson, and it's really a question. It's not a challenge. What about the unconscious mind? Until uh, the, uh, the host of the program just mentioned your name, I had, it had slipped my mind. I've heard a psych psychoanalyst describe the unconscious as what we will remember. How did mm -hmm. that fit into your view? Um, I'm tempted to answer that the way in which the, uh, the Presbyterian preacher, when asked about the problem of evil, said this is a really difficult question and we must face it straight on and pass on. I really don't know what to say about the unconscious. Um, it, right from Descartes onwards, the way of looking at the mind is of something essentially conscious. Now, it could be that the unconscious is rather like the rest of the physical world. I mean, 
in some sense there is a brain and it could be that there are things laid out in the brain which are um, contain the information about things that we've known and things that we might do and the unconscious is to be thought of in those terms but I, I don't have a good answer to your question the idea that something unconscious is truly mindy I find difficult so so Howard let me um, let, let me put my question this way so, so first, let me acknowledge something. So, so we 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 we've got we've got this thing that Ken and I were calling monistic materialism, right? And because it's common sense, I'm sure many of our listeners just can't believe there's much wrong with it. But it really does have a problem: is how do you explain consciousness in the mind, right? Given a world of molecules in motion, yep. but on the other hand, given your view. Uh, how do we explain matter? How do we explain all all the things that science tells us about matter? Are they really just talking about our minds and God's mind? How does that work? Let me give you an example that Barclay, I don't know if he worried about it, but he thought about it. Uh, how, how do we account for the fact that astronomy tells us that this, that the Earth is moving around the sun when all of our sensations are as if the sun was moving around the Earth? Well, it depends what you mean by all of our sensations. If you include in the sensations the observations scientists make, which leads to the theory that the Earth is moving around the sun, uh, to give you the most comprehensive theory, uh, then it's not true that all our right. sensations, only the, the sensations of everyday experience. Um, so the, the, there is no conflict between Barclayanism and science. Yeah, you look the, at... There's a Wittgenstein has a nice line about this. He says, "What would it look like if the Earth did go around the sun? Right. It would look exactly like this. So right. this is the appearance to us of the Earth going around the sun." Yeah. So there is no conflict between Barclayanism and uh, science, unless you try and make the science into a, a materialist or okay. physicalist metaphysics. But I, I still, I, I, I can see that line of argument. But I want to know. I, I'm, I'm a common sense kind of guy sometimes, and I and I, for common sense, I bump into objects. Right? right, they appear to me unbidden, without my will. You know, uh, something that looks one way to me now can I can say, oh my God, I misperceived that. Right? I thought it was a large furry thing. It turned out to have been my son. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right or whatever. I mean, so how does how do you account for that? I mean, common sense tells me there's a world out there distinct from me. Common sense tells me it's hard for me to know exactly what it's like that I can be wrong and I can update my representations of it. I mean, what what what? How convince me that appeal common to my sense. common sense? Common sense tells me that I don't make this all up there's something out there against which I run, something that resists, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Now, the most natural account of this is that there is what, in the, in the standard common sense way, a physical world. But if some of the arguments that I've not very clearly alluded to right at the beginning uh, about our difficulty in forming a conception about what mind-independent matter is are right, then it's very difficult to think of the thing of which we run up against as being, um, as it were, a mindless um, uh, set of properties or, or dispositions. The alternative account is that um, what you, in the Barclayan account, is, is what you have is what, what we run up against and what to resist us, so to speak, is the divine plan of the experiences, the, the shape our experiences fall into. So, so, so we don't control those. It's not that uh, I make it up. 
so so let me uh, uh, give an example. So I'm out fishing. Right. Right. And suddenly I feel a tug on my line. So I have a sensation, you know, right. uh, and I think there's a fish tugging on my line. Right. And then let's suppose, <laughs> uncharacteristically, I manage to get the fish into the boat. Then I see the fish. So now I'm having visual sensations of the fish. Right. And then I take the fish off the hook so I have tactual sensations of the hook. And let's so eventually I eat the fish. So I have gustatory right. sensations of the fish. And in spite of my best efforts, it smells a little bit fishy. So I have all olfactory sensations of the fish. So that's the whole pattern that the fish plays in my experience, from, right. from, from the tug on the line to the last swallow. Mm. Now, uh, you know, commonsensically, I, or, or, uh, I think, well, there was a fish out there. It existed uh, completely independently of my sensations. Uh, and, and, and it caused those sensations as it got into various relations with me. And you say, well, that's all fine, as long as you realize that ultimately what you're thinking about is God's plan. Now, my question is, now, God is much different than us. God right. doesn't eat fish. He doesn't right. catch fish. He doesn't smell fish. He doesn't well, taste fish. Although he smells he, pretty fishy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, he's out of space and time. Is it really any, is my concept of God's plan, given the vast difference between God's mind and my experience, any clearer to me than my concept of a material world? Well, it is in the following sense. Uh, because of our um, extrapolation from uh, projection from the ordinary experiences we have and the science we develop on the basis of that, we on the whole know what's going to come or what should come or what's likely to come next. In that sense, we do know what the divine plan is. We may not know in a, a very heavy um, providential or eschatological sense why it's all here, but we are able to um, make projections about where experiences are going to go, what it's going to feel like. It's going to feel as if there is a physical world in the normal sense. Well, Indeed, but, this is what it is for there to be a physical world in the normal sense. But Howard, okay, we know kind of what surface level experience is going to be like, but you know what? If we go back to our caveman progenitors and their physical, their, their experience and representations of the world, and we look at the progress of human in inquiry, the world has taken many, many surprising turns. It turns out that when you look at things under higher and higher magnification, that space is mostly not filled with object, solid objects everywhere. But, you know, there's all these quantum gaps and all this stuff. I mean, and, and there's gravity. There's all this stuff. I mean, it's really complicated. The world turns out to be really complicated, far more complicated than our, our senses indicate. Right. And yeah. that shows something about our senses. It seems to me that just our senses sort of partially, imperfectly represent the world, but through reason and all this stuff, we can get at better representations of the world. How do you explain well, that on your Berkeleyan idealism? We, we get at a better theoretical account of how all this works. We don't get at a better account of what it is that's actually out there. Russell, who was not a Barkian idealist, <laughs> uh, made the very important point, Bertrand Russell, that um, science tells us how things behave. It doesn't tell us the intrinsic nature of anything that's there. There's a gap. There's an emptiness. And so, though we get a more and more detailed theory all the time and better mathematics and better predictions for what as it were, experience will be like down the line and now to send rockets to the moon. We don't actually get any insight into the, uh, the ultimate nature of the physical world, if it has one. 
So I think the, the science is irrelevant to what we are arguing about, though wonderful in itself. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing the mind and the world with Howard Robinson from the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. Does science tell us that we don't know what the world is really like? Can you accept that the beautiful sunsets and towering mountains are just the way your mind deals with irritations of your sensory surfaces? That these things are, in themselves, colorless without majesty or beauty? Science. It helps us to manipulate the world, but does it help us to understand it? When Philosophy Talk continues. So, how do we know what we know about the world? Does science tell us what the world really is, or just how we perceive it? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and our guest is Howard Robinson from the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. And we've got a caller on the line, Bob in Palo Alto. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Bob. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, I'm interested in awareness. You guys have mentioned consciousness, and I think consciousness and awareness have some relationship to each other. But I don't think you've touched on it very well in terms of uh, what, uh, I mean, what's important to me is that I'm aware of myself, I'm aware of the world around me, I'm aware of my mood, my dignity, uh, my importance in the world, all these things are important to me. How is that accounted for by either one of your points of view? Take it away, Howard. You got a, you got a response? Well, um, I think of awareness as being, if not absolutely the same as consciousness, as being very uh, close to it. And of course, there are, but there are different senses of awareness. How I'm aware of my dignity is not quite the same as how I'm aware of the contents of my visual experience or what I'm thinking. So, um, but I don't see any, I'm not quite sure what the problem's meant to be for any particular theory about these other kinds of awareness. Could your question fill it in a little bit and help me? Are you still there, uh, Bob? Yeah, I'm still here. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure what your puzzlement is either. If we just think of consciousness as awareness, I mean, consciousness is a a multifaceted thing. I'm aware of John, right? I'm conscious of my... And that's kind of my conscious of John being there. So it's a kind of awareness of myself as aware of John. And I'm aware of all these other... I think of the physical universe as being the only thing that there is. So, so let me. How does the physical universe become aware of itself? Ah, that, that. Ah. Well, the Barclayan idealist ag- agrees with you in a way. He says you've got yourself a puzzle that you can't solve. You're not going to get <clears throat> consciousness out of non-consciousness. So forget the non-consciousness because we know that consciousness is real and it can't arise. It's conceptually impossible for it to arise out of non-consciousness. So, 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 so let me take take Bob's question and, and put it, put it to you this way, Howard. Uh, and fess up about my own philosophy here. So uh, we've got these three big circles on the board. We've got God, mm-hmm. we've got mind, and we've got matter. And the materialist uh, gets rid of the mind, and, and, and you get rid of the matter. Now, I, I think materialism has really big problems of just the sort Bob says. How, does, how, do, you, how do you account for consciousness and awareness? And I must admit that if I was Barclay, if, that is, if I believed in the other two circles, the God circle and the mind circle, I, I think I'd be a Barclayan of some sort. I'd be with you. Because, because as, he, as Barclay puts in the, in the latter part of his dialogues, I mean, what, why, it, why would God have a material world if his 
ultimate aim is to affect the sensations of conscious beings. Right. Why would he do it indirectly? So, 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 it directly? so I want to put myself in the position, suppose I'm, I'm, I'm a convinced Christian, mm-hmm. and I'm toying with the idea of becoming an idealist, and mm-hmm. I say, well, science is a problem, but Howard's given us a pretty good answer to that. God has this tremendously complex plan about what sensations people will have if they do various things. Mm-hmm. And we just are uncovering more and more of that plan. I mean, mm-hmm. from time immemorial or out of time, he's thought, well, if you look through a microscope or you do a DNA mm-hmm. thing, this mm-hmm. is what will happen. But so, but now as a as a as a Christian, I'm sort of pretending here. I believe that God is God's plans are in many ways unfathomable. We have no idea why the Holocaust was part of His plans, mm-hmm. and and it just seems utterly mysterious about why He would have created such a huge, expanding, long-lived universe in order just to affect the sensations. I mean, why does His plan include all of that stuff? Oh, he's a really <laughs> he's a really big thinker. This God guy. Well, he seems quite <laughs> obsessive. I mean, if what he's really after is 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 the sensations of believing Christians in the small corner of the universe, what's all the rest of it about? Well, you'll be surprised to hear that I find that quite a difficult question to answer. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not but surprised. Why, why shouldn't it be a big plan? Um, because the bigness is only the complexity of the theory when intelligence comes to grips with its own experiences and tries to make some kind of sense of it. Right. It's not big in a sort of um, waste of space sense. <laughs> but, but wait a minute, Howard. I, I like what you just said, but I, now I think you're on shift, losing ground, or at least you, there's no victory for you here. Because I think about human beings in the world trying to understand it, and then trying to understand their place in it, right? Right. And they've got this complicated thing. So we have science, and then we try to apply science to ourselves to understand the mind in the world, and we think science gives us gradually and progressively a better, better hold on things. Uh, on the other hand... You say, well, we've got God and his big complicated plan, and it feels complex to us when we try to understand, we, when we try to achieve self-understanding. What are we such that God has these plans for us and all this stuff, and what is God's plans? And you say, then it gets complex. But it doesn't just get complex. It gets mysterious and unfathomable. I mean, at least I can begin to tell, if I'm a materialist, a story about how mind relates to the world and how it manages gropingly, slowly, to gain better and better knowledge through science. But in your picture... It's just this big, unfathomable mystery. No, I think you're begging the question. I mean, if it's coherent to be a materialist, then you're right. Nobody would resort to Berkeley and idealism if they thought there was a decent account of what matter's supposed to be. And nobody would be a dualist if they thought that consciousness or in, in, intellect or whatever had got a, a, a decent physicalist account. So you're, you're right in where you start off from. The question is, what do you do if you... I uh, think these things... Don't work. Can, can I just for half a minute be a bit autobiographical? Sure. When I started off as a graduate student, I mean, I was brought up, and I am religious, um, I was worried about whether there would be a materialist account of mind and consciousness. And then I read, read Jack Smart and a bit later David Armstrong. I thought, they're the people with their backs against the wall. The idea that you could only account for experience physicalistically by saying we're not aware of anything in its, in its own intrinsic nature... Uh, it's a bizarre theory, you know, the topic neutrality account of, of experience. Um, and there really is no way of producing a naturalistic account of why there's consciousness in the first place. And then the next thought is, look, our, our notion of matter is entirely dependent on what it is like to perceive the world. 
So the physicalist picture that we, we understand 99.9% of the world is just a little bit we can't account for is wholly wrong. But wait a minute, our wait a minute. of matter depends on projection uh, of what uh, it's like. To our, our notion of matter has gotten more and more and more complicated over time. Our perceptual apparatus hasn't changed. And sort of the first-hand, first-person, surface-level experience of matter is still the same. We experience the world the way Aristotle did, but we understand it much more deeply. Aristotle thought water was a simple essence. We now know that we had the chemical revolution, and after that, the quantum revolution. So our concepts of matter are really rich and complicated and ever-evolving. And I think they get less and less, well, when you get to the quantum <laughs> level, they get more mysterious. But, but we have a rich way of understanding matter that goes beyond surface no, sensation. We have a rich understanding of the scientific structure of the world. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But that would make no sense. I mean, the philosopher Wilfred Sellers dis, uh, distinguished between the manifest image of the world, which is the way it normally looks to us, and the scientific image, which is the theory. Now, the scientific image can never replace the common sense image because it's like the lines of force within our ordinary experienced world. If you have the scientific image by itself, it's just mathematics. It doesn't, in that, it adds a lot, but it doesn't add anything or replace the, that image of the world which is based entirely on what it is like for us to experience it. So, so, so Howard, let me, let me go back to Russell. Bertrand yeah. Russell thought, like you do, that, that all all science gives us is more and more dispositional, structural, right. mathematical descriptions right. of matter, and right. we never really get to know what it is. But Russell, at least later in his life, said, yeah, but there's one exception. He said, we do know the intrinsic properties of some of our own brain states. That's what consciousness is. So... That was his solution. I think it's a basically not exactly materialistic, but a physicalistic solution to the problem of awareness and consciousness. What do you think of that? Quite a few people now go for that solution. And the interesting thing about it, it's kind of physicalist and it's kind of panpsychist. That's to say, it's kind of the view that matter itself has um, sensational experiential qualities right to its heart. I, explain panpsychism real quickly. Panpsychism is the view that there's mind in everything. And R Russell's picture is that um, you know the real physical nature of only one thing. That's your own brain. And the red patches, the pain feelings, um, even, I suppose, the uh, emotional jealousies and uh, whatever the, the things that Russell had, they're the intrinsic inner nature of the electrons, the protons, and the neurons that make your own brain. Now, put aside the following question, what is it to be aware of those things in addition to those qualities? Nevertheless, that's, that's almost like Leibniz, and that's why Russell, I think, liked Leibniz. It's putting the qualitative nature of experience into the heart of matter. So, so, and that's not, a very good, that's not a very standard form of physicalism. So let me wrap up with what Russell said about his view. He said when a brain surgeon does brain surgery on your brain, he's really just seeing the inside of his own brain. So on that note, Howard, thanks for <laughs> joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And our guest is Howard Robinson. He's professor of philosophy at the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary, from which he joins us, and he's author of the book Perception. This conversation continues, on, as always, on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo. And you can download podcasts of our program from our website as well. Right now, we'll try to help a listener think through a real-life problem using the tools of philosophy. We call it a conundrum.
So we've got a caller on the line now. Uh, Dylan, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Uh, thanks, guys. Where are you calling from, Dylan? Pennsylvania. Ah, you you listen to us on the internet there, right? Yeah, I do. That's cool. What do you do out there in Pennsylvania? I'm a full-time student at a boarding school. So so you're on the young age side. Yeah, I'm 16. Oh, I I think you get the prize for our youngest conundrum haver ever. So you should you should feel proud of that. I am actually. Why did you tell us what your conundrum is? Well, my my question is um, it concerns copyright and graffiti. Um, I had to do an art project for school, and I ended up taking a picture of graffiti, and I wanted to use it in one of my images, but my teacher wouldn't let me do that because she said that it violated copyright. I don't really take no for an answer well, so I looked <laughs> up fair use. Uh huh. And um, I found out that I was actually able to use it because it was a scholarly work. But that raised the question in my mind, um, according to copyright.gov, your work is protected under copyright as soon as... uh, It says, your work is under copyright protection the moment it is created and fixed in a tangible form. So graffiti, I think, would fall under that, but graffiti is kind of an illegal art form. So my conundrum is... Does copyright cover graffiti? And well, not really does, but should because that's a. I don't know what the law is, and you didn't call call a lawyer or some show like that. You called philosophy talk. So let's focus but on the what, should question. Yeah. yeah. Let Let's go back a a, a couple of decades where uh, censorship in the United States was was fairly stringent. So Henry Miller's novels couldn't have been weren't weren't published here for a long time. Uh, the works of the Marquis de Sade and so forth. Now, suppose that one writes a novel under those circumstances uh, and publishes it illegally. Uh, Now, we might say, well, you know, there shouldn't be censorship, but suppose there actually is. Still, it would seem to me the fact that it's illegal wouldn't mean that the person should, should be deprived of copyright protection. Well, I, that's that I, I see your point, John. I see your point. That's an interesting question. But think of graffiti as just defacing public property, illegal uh, graffiti, as defacing public property. Right? I don't know why you should get compensated by somebody who chooses to use your defacement of public property in a photographic exhibit. I mean, that's a, something out there in the public world that you have no kind of commercial rights to because you don't have any rights to do it in the first place. So doesn't what in that case, wouldn't the illegality of it override any kind of commercial interest you might have in it? I mean, I guess we have to define two questions. We we have to disassociate our sense of graffiti as usually being something trivial that no one would claim copyright for, and the fact that that it is graffiti. So if if Shakespeare wrote one of his sonnets on the walls of the Globe Theater during an actor's strike, so it was clearly graffiti, would they have the right to? copy it and do something with it. Now, there's another question that we didn't get to. I think that the copyright laws in this country are crazy, and they, they get in the way of uh, remix, the f- you know, the free exploitation of cultural products by other cultural producers, and they stifle creativity. So, even if it should be protected, well, I don't know what the copyrights law should be, I still think it might be, and I think maybe you should have told your teacher, you're into remix culture, and you, as an act of civil disobedience, 
are are trying to show the the stiflingness of these stupid archaic copyright and patent laws, and she should not have stood the way in the way of that of that free exercise of creativity. I think you should have had an argument with her about the point of the copyright laws and whether they serve that point. But you know, I'm a subversive. I don't know what that would have got. I don't know what your teachers like. I don't know. In in the, in the thing you are producing. Uh, would the graffiti have been legible? Would, it, would would the focus in your piece of work have been the content of the graffiti? Well, in my piece, it was generally um, it was compilations. So I would take a picture of a landscape and then take a picture of um, graffiti figures, like different animals or people or whatever, and then um, select them and put them into that landscape for the certain effect. Um, Boy, you sound like a pretty creative guy, Dylan. I wish I could see this thing. Take a take a picture of your artwork and post it on our uh, website. Yeah, that sounds sure. cool. Now, I don't know if we've helped uh, you think about this in a clear-headed way. I mean, you might regret calling philosophers rather than a lawyer, but, uh, you know, we've had fun with you. Oh, no, that's what philosophy's all about. It. Thank you, guys. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. If you have a philosophical problem or quandary that's affecting your work or your play or keeping you awake at night, John and I would be happy to lend an ear and maybe give you some sound advice. Go to the Philosophy Talk website and poke the conundrums button with your mouse, or just send an email to conundrums at philosophytalk.org. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University Copyright 2009. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Our directors of research are Daniel Elstein and Cole Leahy. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merrill Kessler, Corey Goldman, Jennifer Jensen, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. Also, from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed, or misexpressed in this program, do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Thank you for thinking.